on our way home from our honeymoon, on the eve of Valentine's Day, mind you, um, might not have been the most romantic gesture. Um, I'll also admit that um, it might have made those sitting around us slightly awkward, feel slightly awkward. But, but I have needed over the years the truth of that book, and especially the truth that Jesus Christ is my mediator. He is the one who goes before the Father and pleads the merits of His work and His blood for me so that I might be forgiven of my sins and reconciled to God. J.C. Ryle once said the following about the mediating work of Christ. He said, No other foundation could have met the necessities of lost, guilty, corrupt, weak, helpless sinners. The foundation once obtained is very strong. It can bear the weight of the sins of the world. It has borne the weight of all of the sins of all the believers who have built on it. Sins of thought, sins of imagination, sins of heart, sins of head, sins which everyone sees and sins which no man knows. Sins against God and sins against man. Sins of all kinds and descriptions. That mighty rock can bear the weight of all these sins and not give way. The mediatorial office of Christ is a remedy sufficient for all the sins of the world. And I don't know about you, but I need to hear the good news that Christ is my mediator every day and, and can bear the weight of all of my sins. And you need to hear that truth too. And in God's kindness to us, He has set before us our study of Numbers chapters 11 and 12. And in these two chapters, Christ, the, the mediator of the new covenant, is prefigured in Moses, the mediator of the old covenant. So, so as we study Moses and his work as the mediator of the old covenant, we'll also look to Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of a new and better covenant between God and his people. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles. We're looking at Numbers chapters 11 and 12 this morning. And if you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you can find the beginning of the passage on page 119. 119. And while you're turning there, allow me to remind you of what we've studied so far in Numbers. Moses, he, he likely wrote the book of Numbers toward the end of his life. The events of the book pick up nearly two years after the people of Israel were rescued by God from slavery in Egypt. And it follows the people of Israel through at least a period of 40 years of them kind of wandering through the wilderness. The book itself is broken up into roughly three sections. The first nine chapters or so reflect on Israel's stay at Mount Sinai. The next 12 chapters or so cover Israel's journey to the plains of Moab. And that's what we're in the middle of. We're in the middle now, or well, the beginning, of Israel's journey to the plains of Moab. And, and then roughly the last 15 chapters of the book recount sig significant events in Moab. So last week we studied Numbers 10, and we considered the beginning of Israel's journey through the wilderness. The cloud, it, it lifted up from over the tabernacle, and the people of Israel, they set out for the wilderness of Paran. Moses, he even invited his, his father-in-law to join them on the journey because he was so fully persuaded that God would keep his promises to do good to the people of Israel. And what becomes clear in Numbers 11 and 12 is that the people of Israel are uncertain that this journey is actually a good idea. They grumble and complain in the wilderness. And Moses, he becomes uncertain about his ability to lead this people. And even his closest relatives challenge him and his leadership. These events, the events in these two chapters, revolve around Moses and his call to be the mediator between God and his people. They teach us about the need for a mediator between God and men. They teach us that Moses is not the final mediator between God and his people. And yet they teach us that Moses was the type of mediator that God's people need. 
These two chapters are filled with agony and anticipation. There is a sense of agony in these chapters as the people of Israel doubt the goodness of God, reject Him, and rebel against Him. Still, there is also a sense of anticipation as these two chapters look forward to a day when God will finally provide the mediator this people so desperately need. Which brings us to the first point that we want to consider together this morning. The need for a mediator. So if you're taking notes this morning, this is the first point that we want to consider together. The need for a mediator. And as we think about the need for a mediator, let's read the first three verses of Numbers 11. Read Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. I really appreciate the fact that the editors of the ESV began chapter 11 in this section with that word and, and as the opening word of this chapter. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. On the one hand, keeping that and there reminds us that this is a continuing story. On the other, it sets up a contrast between Moses and the people of Israel. So chapter 10 concluded with Moses exuberant and joyful at the fact that God is leading his people. He's keeping his promises to bring them into the promised land. Moses is exuberant and joyful at the thought that the Lord is going to do good to his people. But as we can see here, the opening of chapter 11, the people of Israel are anything but exuberant and joyful like Moses. This is a shocking scene. Because the people of Israel fail to remember, remember that they're, they're being led to the promised land. It's, it's a shocking scene for another reason. The people of Israel have complained before. Just after the Lord freed Israel from slavery in Egypt, which again should have been an occasion for joy, the people of Israel complained. They complained about water in Exodus 15. Then they complained about food in Exodus 16. <laughs> Later on in Numbers, we'll see that the people of Israel were complaining about food again. But for now, their complaint is stated rather broadly. They were grumbling about their misfortunes, their, their situation, as verse 1 says. The, the ultimate focus of these verses contains three elements. First, the complaint of Israel. Second, the anger of the Lord. And third, the intercession of Moses. One leads to the other. Israel complained, complained in the hearing of the Lord, as if he wasn't going to hear everything their mouths said and everything their hearts said. They complained in the hearing of the Lord. So the anger of the Lord, secondly, was aroused. And third, Moses interceded for them. Israel complained, complaining or grumbling, as some translations put it, is fundamentally an attack on the wisdom or goodness of God, or both. It's fundamentally an attack on the wisdom or goodness of God, or both. It's, it's not necessarily a denial of God's sovereignty and power. We can still believe that God is sovereign and complain. When we complain, we may be saying that God is not wise, that He's not, he's not led us well, and we're in danger. Or we may be saying that God is not good, that He's withholding some good from us. Or we may be attacking both God's wisdom and goodness, complaining that God has led us, that where He has led us is both unwise and unkind. Do you see how complaining or grumbling is an attack on God's wisdom or goodness or both? Do you, you recognize that when you complain, or grumble that you are attacking God's wisdom or goodness or both. Children, youth, young adults, I wonder if you recognize this about your complaining. 
Did you know that when you're complaining about something your parents, teacher, or coach has legitimately asked you to do, that you're not simply expressing disappointment, but that you're venturing into the realm of questioning God's goodness or wisdom, both. You're effectively saying, God, I don't like this situation that you've put me in, the authority you've put me under, and the task that you've allowed me to be called to. Let me encourage you to talk with uh, your, your parents or a mature Christian about what is really involved in complaining. And parents, let's confess that far too often our response to complaining from our children is to complain ourselves. I know that happens in my own heart and life. And we need to plead with God to forgive us of our sins. Israel's complaining aroused God's anger. And rightly so. Their complaining called into question God's perfect goodness and wisdom. And we might be tempted to think that Israel has no right to complain after all that God has done for them. He, he has freed them from slavery. He has provided for them at Sinai. He has made His presence known among them and now He's leading them on. They have no right to complain against God. They're... Their complaints are more fundamental, though. They're not calling into question what God has done, but who He is in His perfect person. They're sliding God's glory, and for this rebellion and sin against the infinite and eternal God, they deserve to be punished in His infinite and eternal wrath. And when we keep this in mind, shouldn't we be amazed at the restraint that the Lord shows? in only consuming some of the outlying parts of the camp. The fact of the matter is, is that due to their sin, the people of Israel are in an incredibly dangerous position. They have provoked the justice and wrath of God, and He would have been perfectly just to wipe them all out at that very moment and punish them for their sin. They called out to Moses, and Moses interceded for them. Moses prayed and pled with God to be merciful. Moses prayed to the Lord like he did before in Exodus 32 and 33 when the people of Israel sinned against God by making the golden calf. And just as before when Moses interceded for Israel, God in His mercy relented from judgment. And on this occasion, the fire died down. I wonder if you see the need that the people of Israel have for a mediator like Moses. They need someone to stand between them and God and plead for mercy. This is not their first sin. And sadly, it will not be their last. We will see more complaints take place in the book of Numbers beyond chapters 11 and 12. The people of Israel need someone to plead with God not to utterly wipe them out in holy and just fiery judgment. Not just on this occasion, but through the duration of their journey through the wilderness. They needed Moses as a mediator. Without Moses, they would have died in the desert. We need a mediator too. We, we need a mediator who will plead with God not to wipe us out for our sins and complaints against the Lord. We need someone to plead with God to be merciful to us, to forgive us for sliding His glory, calling into question His wisdom and goodness. We need a mediator who will avert God's fiery and just judgment against our sin. And having considered the need for a mediator, we turn next to consider the need for a better mediator. Now there's something that I want you to, to keep in mind as we study through our second point, the need for a better mediator. We're looking at Numbers 11 verses 4 through 35. Uh, in the first three verses, what we just considered in Numbers chapter 11, you recall that three issues were raised. Israel's complaining, Moses' intercession, God's anger. In this next section that we're now turning to look at, Numbers chapter 11 verses 4 through 35, we'll also th see three, three more issues emerge. Um, in these verses, in greater depth, we'll see Israel's complaints. We'll also see Moses' uncertainty and inadequacy. 
And then third, we'll see the need for new spirit-endowed leaders among the people of Israel. And these three issues emerge not just once, but they, they cycle through a couple of times. And as we study this section, we're going to follow the cycle to see how the story progresses. So let's look at the first part of the cycle. Here we're just going to look at verses uh, 4 through 10. So read Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 10. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now... Our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of Bedillum. The, the, the people went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans. Everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. The broad complaint mentioned in verse 1 is narrowed to food in verse 4. And notice what this grumbling is marked by. It's marked by craving and weeping. The idea of craving is the, is the idea of, of lusting after something deeply. And weeping certainly expresses a strong desire as well. These complaints will not be easily quelled. Notice too at bottom the desires to be back in Egypt. Can you believe that? It's as if the people of Israel are ready to exchange their freedom for food. They are ready to go back to their chains, back to being enslaved, go back to being under the harsh rule of Pharaoh, go back to having their children killed, and going back to making bricks without being provided straw. If only they had food other than the manna that God had graciously and miraculously provided for them. Israel's desire to go back to Egypt is not only irrational but foolish and sinful and rebellious. Now, before we come down on Israel too hard, let's remember that sometimes we too are carried away by the desires, the cravings of our own flesh. Sometimes we want to put sin's chains back on to our own hearts and lives. Sometimes we forget just how heavy those chains are, don't we? When we are lured into sin by the cravings of our flesh, we remember just how difficult it is to break free from those chains again. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to be honest with you. Holiness is hard. Holiness is hard. It is hard to believe trust and follow God. It is hard to resist sinful cravings. We so desperately need God's help. Holiness is hard, but it is not heavy. Sin is heavy, and it is an unbearable burden. J just consider what Moses thinks of bearing the burdens the sins of the people of Israel. Read Numbers 11, verses 11 through 15, and feel the weight that Moses feels. Moses said to the Lord, verse 11, Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers. Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once 
If I find favor in your sight, that I might not see my wretchedness. I don't know about you, but I, when I read this text, when I first read this text, I thought to myself, is Moses, is Moses now complaining to God? And at one level, I think he is. And, and what is clear is that in his kindness and grace, God did not deal with Moses as his sins deserve. At another level, I don't think that Moses' complaint about the difficulty of leading Israel and bearing their burden is the issue that the Lord wants our attention taken up with in this text. I think that the main issue that the Lord wants our attention to be taken up with is Moses' inadequacy for bearing the burdens of Israel. So yes, while this is something of a complaint, it is also a confession. Moses is confessing that he cannot bear the burdens of the people of Israel alone. When you, when you have sinned and are before the Lord, don't you feel the weightiness of your own sins? Almost sometimes, maybe you have this feeling of being physically weighed down in your guilt and your shame. Now Moses sees the sin of a whole nation before him. Knows that he's responsible before God to, to mediate between Israel and God. And he feels the weight not just of his own sin, but of all of Israel's sins. He says he cannot carry the burdens of the people of Israel alone. And do you know what? He's right. He, he's right. The burden is too heavy for him. He cannot bear the burdens of Israel's sins like they truly need to be borne once and for all. In fact, Moses needs someone to bear the burdens of his sins and complaints too. Moses, the mediator, needs a better mediator than himself. He needs a mediator for his own sin. And these verses in this confession remind us that we have not yet met the Savior of God's people in the storyline of the Bible. We have not yet met the one who is promised in Genesis 3.15. We have not yet met the promised seed of the woman who will bear the sins of God's people and crush the curse of sin and death. We have not yet met the mediator whom God would actually kill because he fully bore the sins and burdens of his people alone. Now in these verses we see that though Moses is a mediator for God's people, we see that he is not the final mediator of God's people. God's people need a better mediator than Moses. Moses is inadequate for that task and he confesses it to God. And since the fullness of time had not yet come for God to, to send his final mediator who could bear the sins of his people since the fullness of time had not yet come for God to send the one who could and would bear your sins and my sins God in his kindness to Moses answers him and tells him that a group of men will help him to carry this burden of leading a sinful people read Numbers chapter 11 verses 16 and 17 here we're looking at spirit endowed leaders Verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And I want us to uh, observe here that for the time being, these men are God's promised gifts to Israel and especially to Moses for his confessed inadequacy and inability to carry the burden of the people. I also want us to see and point out that the elders in ancient Israel are, are different than that of elders in the New Testament church. We have, we have elders in this church. Our elders are different than that of those in in ancient Israel. It's, it's true that both do have a responsibility to care for God's people, to be marked by the Spirit, but the, the church, the New Testament church elders, aren't tribal like they were in ancient Israel. Elders in the local church or, or pastors 
as they're sometimes called in the New Testament, are to be men who lead not, not because of their family heritage or their status in the community, but because of their love for the Lord, His Word, and His people. Men, uh, brothers in this congregation, are you marked by those things? Are you, are you marked by love for the Lord, uh, love for His Word, and love for His people? Can those things be seen in your lives? Is, is your love for the Lord visible? Is it evident? Is your love for His Word clear? Can others see in you a love for God's people? Is that observable? Brothers, let's pray and labor to see these things mark out our lives. Let's spur one another on where we need to see each other grow in these areas. Now with these verses, with verses 16 and 17, we've come through the first cycle that I mentioned that takes place in these verses. We've seen Israel's complaints about food, Moses' uncertainty regarding his leadership, and the promise of new spirit-endowed leaders among the people of Israel. With verse 18, the cycle begins again, so we return to the beginning. We don't have time to read them now, but verses 18 and 20 are once again concerned with the issue of food. Let's just... Take a look at a few things there. So God, having answered Moses' confession and complaint, God now answers Israel's complaint about their lack of meat. Israel longed for the days of Egypt. They longed for the days when they had meat to eat. Well, the Lord will give them meat. So much meat, in fact, it will become loathsome to them. And the point in God giving Israel this meat is not that you should be careful what you wish for, or that God gives in to the demands of His people and they crave and weep. The point is that rejecting the Lord results in judgment. That's what the middle of verse 20 makes clear. Take a look at the middle of verse 20. God will give the people what they desire because they have rejected the Lord who is among them. God is giving His people judgment and giving them this meat. Sometimes God's punishment takes the form of giving people over to their sins and not holding back sin's destructive force. We need a mediator to save us from the wrath of God that is due to our sin. And we need a better mediator than Moses. For in verses 21 to 23, we return to the cycle of Moses' uncertainty. Moses' uncertainty in these verses, in verses 21 to 23, runs along these lines. How can this be, God? Where am I going to find all of this food? What, what am I to do about these 600,000 men, not to mention the women and children who are traveling with us through the desert? Am I to instruct them to kill all of the animals that are with us? Moses is uncertain about how he is to lead and how this food that God is promising to judge the people of Israel with will be provided. But God promises that His hand is not short and that He can do what He promises. So God calls Moses to look to Him. And though he was initially uncertain, in the end it seems as though Moses does trust the Lord for he obeys God and he, he departs to tell the people of Israel the words of the Lord. So in verses 24 to 30, we return to the phase of the cycle where we're again reconsidering Israel's need for additional spirit-endowed leaders. Earlier, in verse 17, to be precise, the Lord promised Moses that he would not have to bear the burden of the people alone. And so he would take some of the spirit that's on Moses, he'd put it on uh, these men, the elders, so that they would bear the burden of the people with Moses. In, in these verses, we see the Lord's promise to Moses fulfilled. The, the 70 elders are gathered and the Lord's Spirit comes to rest on them. Their ability to temporarily prophesy was undoubtedly a sign and an assurance to them that they have been duly ordained to lead God's people and entrusted to bear the burden of the people with Moses. Apparently, Two men, Eldad and Medad, funny names, anyway, uh, Eldad and Medad uh, did not make it out to the tent uh, of meeting with Moses, but they were still among those who were to be endowed with the Spirit to lead God's people and bear the burden with Moses. 
So given that Eldad and Medad did not make it out to the meeting with Moses uh, and the others, but remained in the camp, uh, some of the, um, the Israelites in the camp saw their spirit-enabled gift of prophecy. And this, this unsettled some who were concerned that Moses would be displaced. But Moses wasn't unsettled in the least. Though this was a unique event in the history of redemption, it was also one that points forward to a future hope. That future hope is seen in Moses' words there in verse 29. Look at those words. Moses said, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Moses desired that all God's people would be marked by the Spirit of God. Moses' hope that all God's people would be marked by the Spirit is actually picked up and restated by the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. There we read, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. So Joel said, do, do you hear what Joel is saying? Joel is saying that one day the Lord will answer Moses' prayer. No, no longer will only a few be endowed with the Spirit, but God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. No longer will only a few members of the covenant community be endowed by the Spirit, but every member of the covenant community will possess the Spirit. Joel's prophecy shows us that the outpouring of God's Spirit is even going beyond the people of Israel, ethnic Israel. Just as God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, so many nations, people from every tongue and tribe and nation will be marked by the Spirit of God. When would Moses' hopes and Joel's prophecy come to pass? When a better mediator came to inaugurate the new covenant. So, let's turn now and consider how the people of God in the New Testament understood Moses' hope and Joel's prophecy. So, I want you to keep one finger here in Numbers 11 and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts chapter 2. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, that's on page 910. 910. Acts chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of, of context with regard to what's going on at this point in the book of Acts. Well, the Lord Jesus, He has lived 30 plus years on earth. He promised His disciples that when He was gone, He would send the Holy Spirit. At this point in redemptive history, Jesus had been crucified and buried. He had been raised from the grave. He had ascended into heaven. And what remained? The outpouring of the Spirit. That's what happens in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. During the Pentecost festival... The people are filled with the Spirit and were enabled to speak in foreign tongues or languages so that all could understand. The people who are observing what is taking place, who are not believers observing, they're observing what's taking place among the disciples Jesus, are confused. And in fact, in verse 13 of Acts chapter 2, they believe that Jesus' followers were drunk. And the apostle Peter, he steps up to answer this charge and shed light on what's taking place. So read Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, it's as though Israel's reconstituted there, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then Peter, he goes on to quote Joel's prophecy about how the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Here the disciples are cast as the ultimate fulfillment of Israel, a people of God possessed by and possessing the Holy Spirit. Here is the fulfillment of what Moses longed for. God has answered Moses' prayer and he has fulfilled Joel's prophecy. Peter is telling the crowd that the last days have been inaugurated and that this is seen in the outpouring of the Spirit. 
Turning back to Numbers 11 then, because you kept your finger there, right? Turning back to Numbers 11, it's page 120 of the Bible's provided. We can see that Moses' prayer is precisely answered. All God's people do possess God's Spirit. And that is because a new and better covenant has been inaugurated by a new and better mediator. But more on that in a moment. In verses 31 to 35, the cycle of complaining comes to a close. Just as the Lord had previously promised, He judged the people through giving them what they had craved. Israel got the meat that they had craved. Take in the force of verse 34 in particular. Look at verse 34. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kiribath Hatabah, because they buried people who had the craving. Do you see where sin leads? Sin leads to destruction and death. It leads to the grave. It always has. The Lord said to Adam in the garden, you will surely die. See, we often forget that about sin, don't we? We often forget the end of sin. It is not satisfaction, but ruin. The end of sin is not peace, but punishment. Sin presents itself as beautiful, but it is bitter. Sin lies to us. Our cravings lie to us, and we need to remember the truth about sin. Most of all, we need to remember that God has provided us with a mediator who not only went into the grave for us, but came out of it too, so that we might not bear the force of the punishment that is due to our sins. And this is what we turn to think about next as we turn to consider our third and final point, the need for a God-given mediator, the need for a God-given mediator. And here we're, we're looking at Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 16. Read Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 to 16. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Of course he did. He always does. The Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but, put, had but spit in her face, she should not be shamed seven days. Let her be shut outside the camp seven days. And after that, she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days. And the people of Israel did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Now let's just cut right to the chase with regard to these verses. In these verses, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, 
challenge Moses' place among God's people. They thought that their anointing with the Spirit entitled them to a similar position of prominence among God's people. Due to his meekness, perhaps his uncertainty and his own feeling of inadequacy, it seems like Moses may not have opposed Miriam and Aaron's challenge, but God certainly did. The Lord clarifies for Miriam and Aaron that they are not like Moses at all. The Lord may have temporarily anointed them with the Spirit, but that anointing did not amount to God appointing them as mediators between God and His people. That position, privilege, and burden was given by God to Moses. Miriam and Aaron could not appoint themselves as mediator. There could be only one mediator between God and His people, and God would give and did give His people that mediator in Moses. God punished Miriam by striking her with leprosy. And this caused Aaron to confess his sin and to cry out to Moses to intercede for him and Miriam. Aaron cries out to Moses to be Miriam's mediator. And what is amazing about this scene is that Moses, even though he has been sinned against, steps in and pleads for Miriam. He serves as her mediator and speaks to God on her behalf. He cries out for her healing. And in the Lord's answer to Moses, it seems as though he will grant Moses' petition for healing at the end of seven days. Here again, we see Moses serving as a mediator by interceding for sinners and thus averting the full force of God's wrath. And what the Lord said about Moses in verse 7 is so profoundly true. He was a servant. He was faithful in all God's house. In this way, Moses points us forward to Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, we learn that Jesus was faithful and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Moses was a good God-given mediator. But Jesus Christ is an infinitely better God-given mediator. And this is made explicit in Hebrews chapter 3. So keeping Numbers chapters 12 verse 7 in mind, keeping in mind that Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. You don't have to keep your finger here this time. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. In the Bibles provided, that's page 1002. Hebrews chapter 3. And I want us to look at the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3. Let me read those verses for us. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as a builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. In Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 the writer addresses Christians calling them to consider the truth that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Verse 3. Though Moses was a faithful servant in all God's house, as a servant, verses 5, and Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Verse 6. Notice that comparison and contrast between servant and son and in and over. 
Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is the son over God's house. Moses never had inheritance rights to the house as a servant, but Jesus did as a son. The son gets the father's inheritance. And who is that inheritance? Who's the house? The writers of Hebrews says we are his house. We are Jesus' inheritance. The one who is a faithful mediator over God's house. This comparison and contrast underscores the superiority of Christ and His worthiness of our faith and obedience. If if Moses, as a God-given mediator and faithful servant, was to be obeyed by Aaron and Miriam and all of Israel in the wilderness then how much more ought we to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not merely a servant in God's house, but a son over God's house. And he, in in imitation of Israel, Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Jesus, in imitation of Israel, spent 40, 40 days in the wilderness. In the Gospels you see that. And not one complaint comes from his lips. How we need Jesus. Do you see how how Moses, why Moses pointed forward to Jesus? Do you see how and why Jesus is a better mediator for God's people? The people of Israel complained and God consumed some outlying parts of the camp in fire. You and I, We complained, and Jesus, He bore all, all of God's fiery wrath against our sin on the cross. Moses could not pour out God's Spirit upon God's people, but Jesus could and did. Moses said, I cannot carry the burden of this people. Jesus said, Father, I will bear their burdens. I will lay down my life for my sheep. He willingly took that burden upon himself. And friend, if you're here this morning and and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ as your mediator before God, if you're not trusting in Him as the one who alone can plead His blood for you before God, then do not delay. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Come to Him and believe that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for you. You have sinned against God. Everyone has. You have sinned and complained and grumbled against the all-good, all-wise God who made you and gave you life and breath. And you are in danger of facing His eternal, fiery wrath against your sins. You need a mediator. So repent. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as your mediator. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, bearing the weight and the burden and the shame and the guilt and the punishment that was due to your sin. Believe that He not only went into the grave, but came up out of it three days later for you. Believe that He was raised. And believe that He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father to make intercession, to plead for you and for your forgiveness. Believe in Jesus Christ today. And if you want to know more about what it means that Jesus Christ came to bear the burdens of sinners like you and me, then please do come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member you came with this morning. Uh, Come and join us for lunch and talk about this good news that, that Jesus Christ is the meteor who can forgive all of the sins of all of His people because He has borne all of their burdens. Well, now that, now that I've made um, everyone hungry by mentioning lunch, let's conclude. 
From Numbers 11 and 12, we've seen Israel's complaints. We've seen in them a mirror of our own souls. We've seen their need for a mediator and our need for a mediator. We've seen through Moses' uncertainty and his inadequacy that his work as a mediator pointed forward to a better mediator in Christ Jesus. And we've seen through Miriam and Aaron's opposition that only God can provide the mediator that we need. And we have that mediator as we make our way through the wilderness of this world. We trust in God's mediator, Jesus Christ, and we follow Him. Let me close by once again calling us to consider the choice words of J.C. Ryle concerning our mediator. That same Jesus who once died for sinners still lives at the right hand of God to carry on the work of salvation which He came down from heaven to perform. He lives to hear the confession of every heavy laden conscience. And He lives to to pour down the spirit of adoption on all who believe in Him. He lives to be the one mediator between God and man. I love this next phrase. The unwearied intercessor. He does not tire of bringing your needs before our God. He is the unwearied intercessor and the prevailing advocate. The Father cannot turn His Son away. He answers to His blood. Praise God that He has provided Jesus Christ as our mediator. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give You thanks for Christ our Savior. Oh Lord, in view of all of our grumbling and complaining even this past week perhaps even this morning oh Lord we, we look to Christ and place our hope fully in Him we give you thanks that you knew we would need a mediator and so you gave us one we give you thanks that He is able to bear all the burdens and weight of our sin and we give you thanks for your generosity in giving Him to us and uniting us to Him. Oh Lord, we pray and ask that You would fill our hearts with hope as we make our way toward heaven, trusting in our mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Our closing song is entitled, My Heart is Filled with Thankfulness. That can be found on the insert in your bulletins. Let me encourage you to go ahead and pull that.